Good morning. Uh, I'm super excited this morning, and my Fitbit is telling me I'm pumping at 130 right now, my heartbeat. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know why I'm so nervous, because I have been preaching and teaching for the past 20 years, uh, but uh, preaching here for the first time, uh, I couldn't sleep last night. I woke up at 3.30 and, and just couldn't go back to sleep. Uh, when Pastor Wei asked me to preach, I, I was really super excited. I, 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 say, I said yes right away. Uh, then I kind of felt bad afterwards because I answered so quickly. <laughs> As if I was kind of like, when are you going to ask me? Um, I, uh, during, during this past month, I've been thinking about what am I going to talk about today. And two sermons came to my mind. One is the one I'm preaching right about now. And another one is preaching from the Old Testament book, Haggai. In that book, it talks about how a God-pleasing worship should be like. But I decided to preach on Philippians instead, not knowing the retreat actually Talked about Philippians chapter 1 and 2. I didn't know that because I didn't, I didn't go to Richie. I was in China. So I think the Lord has opened up uh, this for, uh, for us today. Um, and I will try to uh, convey the message as well as I could. Now, I hope that you don't have anything planned before 2 o'clock. <laughs> because that's how long my sermon is going to be. Pastor Wei, when he asked me, he, one thing he didn't ask me is how long is the sermon. So you see, I used to preaching two-hour sermon in China. So two hours is the normal average time of sermon. So this morning I told my wife, if everybody in the back is sleeping, kind of just raise your hand and let me know. Time to stop. Nobody's listening to you anymore. So anyway, uh, but I will try to get, get through as quickly as possible. I normally don't select a passage this long. Uh, originally, I was going to preach on just from verse 7 to 11. Then I looked at the whole thing. I said, no, I can't do that. I cannot cut off the first part and be able to tell the whole story. That's why we ended up with uh, verse 1 through 11. Now, um, let's not delay anymore and uh, start looking into the Word of God. Your bulletin should have the passages uh, printed out. Uh, let me go ahead and read the text. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who uh, mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a prosecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I have gained Christ, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, it's a long passage, so there's no way I'm going to expound fully um, the, 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 the text here. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to glance right through the passage and just give you some highlights and some thoughts to, for you to take home. And hopefully, 
with, uh, with that, uh, you can do a little, little bit of a self-study when you get home. Now, the, the sermon title is not really attractive, to, to tell you the truth. It says, death to self and is gained in Christ. Now, I suppose it's not really an attractive title because nobody liked death. I remember when I was growing up, my parents specifically gave us instruction, do not say the word die, pain, suffering during a happy uh, Chinese New Year period um, because this is not good. So I remember really uh, distinctively, um, we live in a generation where we are really gung-ho about unbridled pleasures. We, we, we seek after happiness, um, self-gratification. So death to self is really out of touch. It's out of time. It's not a message for this generation. But it is a message for all Christians throughout all generations. Many years ago, I listened to a, a, a teaching series from Dr. Asis Bro. In it, he said, Christians should strive to live in the face of God, under the authority of God, and for the glory of God. Wow, that's radical, I'm telling you. That's basically saying that God be around me all the time. Whether I go here, I go there, I do this, I do that. In the face of God. You know what that means? That means that 24 hours, every minute, God is right there. That's what you wish for. That's what you pray for. That's what you live for. That's a radical thinking. That is not something you want, I'm telling you. Right? Do you want God to follow you everywhere? Yes. Good answer. Biblical answer. But in reality, we don't. We don't. Because we have certain parts in us that we don't want anybody, including God, to touch, to see. Now, I would divide today to, today's uh, passage into two portions for, for the uh, ease of grasping the message and also for some of you are taking some notes. I would divide the first, por- uh, first part is verse 1 to 6, and I titled it Warning of False Teacher and False Credential. Verse 1 to 6, Warning of False Teacher and False Credential. And then the second part is verse 7 to 11, the goal of a Christian life is to know Christ and to be like him, and the key to reach that goal is death to self. So let's start. Verse 1 to 6. This part talks about Paul's before his transformation, before his rebirth, and his self is very much alive. He is very confident in his self and his flesh. His achievements made him an arrogant person. Let's start looking at verse 2. I'm going to skip over verse 1 because we're going to come back to it a little little bit later. Verse 2, Paul gives a warning. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Notice the three lookouts. Oh, by the way, when you read read this uh, text over here, Go home and try to find the triple nuggets. There are a lot of triples in here. I'm not going to mention it. You go home and find it yourself, okay? Anyway, here's one. Look out, look out, look out. All right? That's one triple nugget. So go home and find. There may be six, maybe seven of them. Paul wants the readers to know that you ought to be careful because there are people around that can hurt you. And then he used three descriptions. The first one is dogs. Now, I'm sh- I, I am sure Paul is not talking about your pets, okay? There are two words for dogs. This one right here basically says, these are the dogs that roam about in the city streets. They are dirty, vicious, hungry. They attack people. They are bad dogs. They are not the one at home that's clean and groomed the one you pet with and sleep with. These are bad dogs. Now, ironically, the Jews think the Gentiles are dogs because they think they are dirty. They eat anything. They touch everything. 
Their morale is bad. So the Jews always think these are these Gentiles are dogs. But now Paul turns the table around and says, "You are dogs." Now, who are these people? Who are these people that Paul is talking about? They are people who champion the law of Moses and insist on circumcision as the mark of salvation. So these are Judaizers. Paul called them dogs. The second description, evildoers. It basically means that what they do is evil. Now, the evil is not robbery or rape or murder. Rather, the evil is self-righteousness, self-promotion, self-confidence, proclaiming justification through faith. Did I just say justification through faith? No, I didn't mean that. Justification through law. (laughs) Following the law. Now, the teaching does not lead people to God. It's just the opposite. Whenever you have people that lead people away from God, both Jesus and Paul has some harsh word for people like that. Here's one. Evil doer. So Paul considered whatever they do is evil, therefore they are evildoers. Thirdly, these people, Paul called them mutilate the flesh. Now this is really a play on words. In a Greek word, paratome and karatome. Paratome is circumcision. Karatome is the cutting or mutilation. So what basically Paul is saying that These people who carry the mark of the covenant, which is the circumcision, in essence, they really only just cut themselves. Because this cutting had no significant meaning at all. You see, in the Bible, it never emphasized on the external, but it always emphasized on the internal. Let me read you just a couple of passages. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God and with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. In another passage in Leviticus 26, verse 40 to 42, it's too long, I'm not going to read it. But in it, it talks about the uncircumcised heart as well. So circumcision is never about the physical thing. It's about the internal, the spiritual aspect. It is a cutting off of the flesh. It's a cutting off of your sin and corruption from your heart. So circumcision does it never, never save anybody. Verse 3. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus in Uh, in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. What basically Paul is talking about is true Christianity relies totally on the person and work of Jesus Christ for salvation. This is how a circumcised, spiritually circumcised person should look like. Again, Paul gave four characteristics. Number one, this person rejoices in the Lord. Verse one, in fact, the theme joy or joyous is one of the theme in the book of the Philippians. In it, it mentions 16 times. Now, if we consider where was Paul when he was writing this particular letter, uh, then the, 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 the term, the word joy, takes on a totally different meaning. He was in prison when he was writing this letter. So he was not discontent. He was not grumpy. He was joyous. This joy is not only in his head that I am Paul, I should be joyful at all times. I am Paul, I should be joyful at all times. No, it's not like that. This head knowledge actually got into his heart, got into his lifestyle. So there's actually a lot to be said, but I'm looking at the clock, I'm already one-third... And I'm only on page four. I have 14 pages. 
So we're going to move on to character or characteristic number two. This person worships by the Spirit. John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So true worship is the inner sense of awe, gratitude, and love for God that stem from an understanding of who God is and who we are in his presence. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Characteristic number three, this person takes glory in Christ Jesus, or he takes Jesus Christ as his glory. Only a genuine, regenerated Christian can see the glory of Jesus Christ and would worship him accordingly. Uh, I'm not going to read the passage. I'm going to tell you what, where it, you may find it and read it when you get a chance. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The fourth characteristic, this person puts no confidence in the flesh. Acts 17.28 says, In him we live and move and have our being. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, only those who are completely convinced that God is the author of everything would not put any confidence in himself. Counterfeit Christianity builds a person's self-esteem. Oh, you're great. You are cool. You're worthy. You are somebody. To tell you the truth, we are nobody. In the eye of God, we are bunch of sinners. True Christianity humbles all pride and confidence in self. And then following verse 4 to 6, we are about to finish the first section. From verse 4 to 6, Paul mentions seven things in here. He mentions seven things that he was very proud of before his conversion. The first three things has something to do with human credential, his natural heritage. The last three things has to do with human accomplishment. And the middle one, the fourth one, has a little bit of both. So let's see what he's talking about. He said that if you guys want to boast, I have more reasons to boast. Listen, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, why was that significant? I mean, all the Jews, all the male Jews circumcised on the eighth day, right? Well, this is just one of the qualifications that Paul mentioned. Now, circumcision, this directive was given to Abraham, recorded in Genesis 17. And later on, it became the law of the land, the Israel nation. Now, Paul points this out to make a distinction from the other descendants of Abraham. You see, Abraham has many sons. He, he, he has more than one son. So he wants to make a distinction between this particular descendant line from the line of Ishmael. Ishmael, he was circumcised when he was 13 years old. And there are another type of people who circumcise at a the time. These are Gentile converts. And when they do circumcision, they do when they are adult. Ouch. So, Paul points this out to make a point that I submit to the law and follow the law at my earliest stage from my infancy, eighth day. Now remember, he's combating the people of law. So if you want to compare your law and my law, let's see who is better. Let's see who keeps the law better, okay? So this is what Paul is doing. Number two, he said, of the people of Israel. Now the name of Israel always conveys the intimacy and relationship between God and the chosen people. The name was given to Jacob by God after he wrestled with him, wrestled with God all night long. And this name, again, separates from the name of Ishmael. Because Ishmael also uh, was Abraham's son. But 
Ishmael is not part of the covenant. It's not part of the covenant. So being the, of the people of Israel, actually the emphasis is being he is part of the covenant people. He is a chosen people. Number three, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin is kind of interesting because Benjamin is one of the 12 sons. And his mother was Rachel. And you probably remember the story, Jacob actually only loved Rachel, right? And um, because of a lot of story in the background, and anyway, so finally he gets to marry Rachel, and then uh, Rachel is pregnant with Benjamin. And Benjamin is the only son that was born in the promised land. He was the only son born in the promised land. Not only that, when the nation split into the north and the southern kingdom, the tribe of Benjamin is the only tribe that stays with the tribe of Judah to form the southern kingdom. And also, during the repatriation back to the Jerusalem to rebuild the city, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah forms the returning party to rebuild the city and wall. So there's a lot of historical background about the tribe of Benjamin. For a Hebrew of Hebrews, I understand that there are two meanings behind this term. One is that he is conveying a message that I am born of a Jewish parents, so therefore I'm a Jew. And secondly, because at that time, many Jews who lived outside of Palestine, outside of Jerusalem, they do not speak Hebrew. They lost, completely lost the language. It's just like my kids nowadays, they don't speak Chinese anymore, except Jesse a little bit. So, so, so because they live outside of the Palestine area, outside of Jerusalem. They, don't, they, they, they no longer master the Hebrew language. And, and Paul said, no, I speak Hebrew. Can you? Can you? So he's comparing how Hebrew are you. You are not that Hebrew. You can't even speak Hebrew. You are not that Jews. You can't even speak Hebrew. So this is what Paul's point. Number five, as to the law, a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee is a special elite group of people, no more than 6,000 in numbers, they dedicate their life to study the law and follow the law. And being in the Sanhedrin means that Paul excelled to a point where he's actually part of the highest government unit. Number six, as a seal, a prosecutor of the church for a seal to a Jew is, is the noblest quality of religion. I was going to stop here and expand on this point, but look, looking at time, I can't. So, seal for a Jew is very important. You can have knowledge, but you don't have seal. You don't do what you learn. You don't do, you don't practice what you learn. That's a big problem. So, for Paul, he practiced what he preached or at least back then. So that's why he persecuted the church. Because they see these people of the way, meaning the follower of Christ, are cults. They are the anti-God. They is the reason why the nation fall into foreign hands. Number seven, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now notice that Paul did not say sinless. He didn't say sinners. He didn't say, I am sinners because I follow all the law. No, he didn't say that. He just said, according to the law, I'm blameless. Meaning, go, find whether or not I keep all the law. Have you ever seen me fail the law? The answer is no. I mean, if there's a person ever can keep the law externally completely, Paul is the one. He's blameless. You cannot find me breaking the law, not following the law at all. Now, these are the things that Paul was really proud of. But things changed on the way to Damascus. That leads us to the second part, verse 7 to 11. I gave this section a title. The goal of a Christian is to know Christ and to be like him. And the key to that goal is death to self. There is a, uh, 
little section that I read a while back from Reader's Digest. It says, Someone has wisely pointed out one of the most dangerous forms of human error is forgetting what one is trying to achieve. Now, this is especially true in the Christian life. It is easy to get sidetracked. Therefore, we need to be clear and focused at all time on what it is that we are pursuing. What is the goal for a Christian, really? Well, if I read the text correctly, I will sum it up this way. The goal of the Christian is to know Christ and to be like him. Let's start with verse 7. Now, verse 7 started with the but. I, I believe this is one of the most wonderful words in the Bible. You find this a couple of times in the book of Romans. What it suggests is what follows is really different from before. Verse 7 is basically a declaration. It describes Paul's current state of mind. And then from verse 8 forward, basically expand that idea he just mentioned in verse 7. Now, I don't know for what reason. Maybe he just said, well, verse 7, he said, for whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as laws for the sake of Christ. Maybe Paul felt that it wasn't enough. Sort of like uh, I said something, but people probably find wicked room in it. So he followed up in verse 8. He said, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul used the word all to make sure the reader understands all means all. There's no exception. Now, suppose you are backpacking or hiking through a forest. You have a backpack and you have stuff in your hand, and maybe a cane and a map or something. And then all of a sudden you notice there's a wild animal running your way. And then you say, whoa, I'm going to get away. So you start running, right? And then you discover this heavy backpack is on your back. And then you have things in your hand. And you're not running really fast with that kind of burden. So what's the best thing to do at that point? What would you do? Lose all these things, right? Throw away all the stuff. Lose the backpack. Right now, the most important thing is your life. If the wild animal catches up, you're going to get hurt or you may get killed. So at that moment, the most important thing is your life. That you, you lose everything, right? So that's basically what, what happened. For those of us who are married and those of us who are talking about marriage, you know, remember the first time that you met your wife or husband or potential husband and wife? <laughs> I see a lot of smiles. That's good. That's good. Um, remember those times? Uh, it seems like you never have enough time to be with her or him, right? He's always on the phone. Uh, but when I was going through that stage, we didn't have cell phone, we didn't have computers and all that stuff. So it's pretty hard to communicate, okay? The only way is actually see each other. So no matter what, how busy you are, you always find time, right? You always find time to communicate, talk, chat, email, cell phone, text message, whatever the means. That is because at that moment, that person is your most important person in your, in, in your life at that point. So no matter how busy you are, you put them aside. This is what Paul is trying to tell us. Push, push these things away. Lose them. Okay? Because if you don't, you're going to lose something else. I remember the three and a half years I live in, uh, we live in Shanghai, my wife and I and Jesse. I, I get to know a lot of people. And a lot of these people are pretty famous, uh, famous in terms of their world, okay? Uh, I, I have one friend that he, his signature actually appears on, on a $100 bill in Hong Kong dollar. So that's how high he is. His signature is on the bill. And I, there, there was this time this one sister was sharing with us, me and Linda, and said, my husband is so busy that I have to take a suitcase to the airport and exchanged Owen with him. In that suitcase is filled with fresh clothes and you know supplies and all. 
Because he's so busy flying all over the place, he didn't even have time to go home. So the wife take the suitcase to the airport and exchange suitcase with him. I, when I have my brother's meetings in Shanghai, I always ask this question, but unfortunately, this question never get answered, and I don't see any result from the action uh, from the from the question. I ask them, "Do you really need that job? Do you really need that job? Because that's a high-paying job." And I told them, "When they pay you that much, they want your life." They want your life. When they pay you that much, they want your life. Time is life, right? So when they pay you that well, you're not going to go, be able to go home. You're not going to be able to spend time with your family and, and church and so forth. In the last ten and a half years, eleven years or so, we travel a lot through the mainland China. My ministry is there to teach. Serve the house church and the Bible schools. One thing I learned, I learned many, many things. But one of the things that I learned is that we don't really need that many things to survive. So, right about five, maybe six months of a year, Linda and I live out of a suitcase. We live out of a suitcase. We travel one place to another place. Sometimes we stay in people's house. Sometimes we stay in the dorm. Sometimes we stay in a、um, in a hotel, a motel. Sometimes we wake up in the middle of the night. Not okay. Where's the bathroom? This direction or that direction? If you live out of a suitcase for that long, you you will realize that you don't really need that much. <laughs> so I keep saying to myself, if I'm gonna throw away everything, that's easy. There's only two things I would keep: my books and my set of tea collection. No way you're gonna take my tea collection, okay? Well, until God says so, I have to give it up. But anyway, so living a simple life will help you see things clearer. So let me move on. Otherwise, you guys will start throwing bottles at me, and I assume that I'm already out of time. Verse nine: Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, first, Paul is contrasting the law, righteousness, or man righteousness, and the righteousness that comes from God. These two cannot stand together; they oppose each other. Man must give up man's righteousness in order to get or obtain the righteousness from God. There's no ifs and buts. You must. Give up your own righteousness. Second, I want to point that out is that there is a direct relationship between God's given righteousness and the ability to see the value of Christ's. Now, before regeneration, Second Corinthians chapter four, four, chapter four, verse four says, "The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God." Meaning, before we were regenerated, you do not have the ability to see the glory of God. When you don't see the glory of God, He is not the best person in the world. He is not your best love. You will not sacrifice the world for Him. The only way. You will leave behind all things. Is when you actually see the glory of God, which many of us have not. I can guarantee you, this is not an exaggeration. Many of you have not seen the glory of God. We talk about it often. The glory of God begins with genuine. Rebirth, regeneration. In John three, chapter three, when Jesus was talking to, help me out. Chapter three, who is he talking to? Nicodemus. Thank you. When he was talking to Nicodemus, he said, "Without a rebirth, you won't even see the kingdom of God." Then he repeats himself, but this time he changed it a little bit. He said, "Without the rebirth, you will not enter the kingdom of God." So right there, we can establish the first principle: 
in order to see the kingdom of God, in order to see the glory of God, in order to see the real glory of Jesus Christ, you must be reborn. And this is not something you can decide. This is not something that with your IQ of 200 can make it happen. No matter how many PhD degrees you have, it's not going to happen. It would happen only when God comes to you and change you. It would happen only when God comes and takes over your corrupted mind and cleanses it with Jesus Christ's blood. So, there is a direct relationship between the God-given righteousness and the ability to see the value of Jesus Christ. I'm going to skip over this. All right. At this point, I want to pop one question really quickly. I've been a Christian almost half a, de- half a century, 40, 40 years probably. I've seen my fair share of people who walk away from God at the first sight of trouble, first sight of suffering, problems. I remember one sister complained about God took his father because his father jaywalked and got killed by the car. I remember a sister in Xinjiang who committed suicide three times because her husband took off with another woman. This supposedly a Christian lady tried to end her life three times. Now, I'm not, I, I, don't, don't get me wrong. My heart is with her. I, I went to see her. I, I went to counsel her. I wept with her. I hugged her. I encouraged her. But never one word of condemnation said, you shouldn't do that. Because that's not the moment to say these things. But I just can't get over that, that the concept of if Jesus Christ is the most important person in my life and this man, because of another woman, walk off. Why would I end my life for him? A truly regenerated Christian will have a different perspective on all things, including your spouse, including your husband and wife. I learned it the hard way. Maybe someday, in a small group setting, I'll share with you my 15 years of hardship in a cultic church. So, my question is, I, when, I, when I visited maybe over a couple hundred churches, easy, one observation, oh man, one observation that I have is why these self-proclaimed Christians are so indifferent, so cold about the things of God and even God himself. I can't get over this concept because if a person is genuine reborn and if we believe the power of the gospel, Romans 1.16, is true and, and, and we submit to God under his authority, why why these things happen? Why, why would I have an indifferent, cold-hearted Christian sitting in the pew? Well, with my limited wisdom and experience, I come up with two answers. I know there are more, but for the time's sake, I'm just going to give you two. The first one is ignorance. The first one is ignorance. For we do not understand the full demand of Jesus Christ for us. Wait, wait. Isn't gospel supposed to be free? Isn't it supposed to be just based on faith and nothing else? Yes. To obtain the righteousness, to obtain the gospel, yes, the only thing required is faith. Now, we have to presuppose this faith came from God, right? Right? Because man's faith is not going to save you. So if this faith comes from God, it will always bring fruits. Always. You can take that to the bank. 
or better yet, you can take it to God, because that's his word. If someone is reborn, he will always have fruits to follow. So being ignorant, meaning that there could be at a stage where this person is not taught in a certain way, that he does not know the full impact or full implication from the Lord himself. Now, I'm just going to give you some passages later on so we can go self-study. Second is obstacle. There are something standing in between you and God. I remember one time I was sitting there waiting for the service to start. And um, in front of me, there was an empty chair. And then Brother Eugene, you know how big Brother Eugene is, right? Walked up and sat there. So when time comes to stand up to sing, I couldn't see that. All I saw was Brother Eugene's, your beautiful round head. And I couldn't see anything. Right there and then, I got disconnected with the worship. I can no longer participate because I can't see the screen. I, can't, I don't know the words. What must be happen? Two things, right? One, Brother Eugene, stand aside. Right? Push him away. Remove the obstacle. Or number two, what do I do? I move. I move to a space where I can actually have direct sight to the screen. So, Christians, if you can't see yourself giving everything to God, there's something wrong with you, or there's something blocking your view. What is it? I don't know. Everybody's different. In my case, it was Brother Eugene. (laughs) I don't know about you. It could be something else. It could be money. It could be sex. It could be power. It could be your job. It could be your family. Something is standing in the way that you cannot see God directly. This is very deadly, I'm telling you. So you see, you're still okay. You're still happy. Because why? You are still here. You, you are surrounded by Christians right next to you. You feel good. You're here. You think that you are part of the worship, but you are not. You are disconnected. This is a false sense of security of being a church, and yet you don't see God. I was, I was going to start this sermon with three questions, and I figured that's way too long. It's going to really take two hours. And one of the questions I was going to ask you right off the bat is, why are you here this morning? Have you thought about that? As you step through the door this morning, why are you here? Well, I'm here because I have to preach today. That's easy. But how about you? Why are you here? Why are you here? Have you thought about that? No. Seldomly we give that question a thought. Have you prepared yourself to come? How did you prepare yourself to come? See, when we don't do these things, no wonder when big problems surface, you can't handle them. Because we do not have God in our lives. I really have to fast, move faster. I'm going to cover this point and I'm going to end, okay? The point of suffering. In verse 10 to 11, Paul mentioned, this is actually the core of the message, and, and I'm so... I feel so bad that the core of the message is actually at the end where there's no time left. So really, you guys don't plan on going anywhere uh, to 2 o'clock. So this is actually the core of the message. There are four things that Paul mentioned in here. I'm going to just skip through the three and just going to concentrate on one. The four things are that he knows God, okay? This is not the head no knowledge. This is this, this different between know about somebody and knowing somebody. Number two, knows the power of this, his resurrection. This is, again, it, 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 it required another half an hour to, to, to expound the, dip, you know, the, the meaning of that. But I, I do want to follow, I spend a few minutes on, on the third one, suffering. 
Fellowship of his suffering, meaning to share in his suffering. There's a reason why God gives power to us. Have you ever thought about that? Why do you put gas in your car? So that you can run. Why do you plug these things into the wall socket so that you can work? Same question. Why do you receive the power of the uh, resurrection? Why do you receive the power of resurrection? It's for something. It's not for you to enjoy, okay? It's for you to do something. Now, when we receive the power of resurrection... God, one of the things God wants us to do is follow his footstep in suffering. Now, this is something that seldom we talk about. Let me read you something from the book, The Cause of Discipleship, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The cross is laid on every question. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is to call to, to abandon the attachments of his world, of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And here come the best part, the most quoted statement. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. John Calvin says, We must all therefore be prepared for this, that our whole life shall represent nothing else than the image of death until it produce death itself, as the life of Christ is nothing else than a prelude of death. We enjoy, however, in the meantime, this consolation, that the end is everlasting blessedness, for the death of Christ is connected with the resurrection. 2 Timothy 2.11, if we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. 2 Corinthians 1.5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. It, it's just way too much to... To, to talk about here, I will, use, I, will, I will use another passage here and I will go on to my conclusion. Hebrews 5.8 says, Christ learned obedience through the things he suffered. But that doesn't mean that Christ is incomplete without suffering. No, 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 no. God forbid. This means that He never experienced the test of obedience until he suffered the cross, which is the ultimate test of obedience. My brothers and sisters, your love toward Christ will be tested. Rest assured, take that to the bank. If your love toward God is not tested, I am worried about you. Well, I don't know in what form your test will come. Everybody is different. But at a certain point of your life, there will be tests. There will be trials to test whether or not all these years you're proclaiming you love Christ. Let's see if that's true. I can rest assured every one that I've seen that is used by God always get tested. So in conclusion, I skip over a lot, so it's probably not very connected at this point, I know. So what is your life goal? Uh, you come in here this morning, I ask the question, why are you here? Is being here this morning complete or help you to achieve your life goal. By being here this morning, by being here this morning, did it help you reach 
closer to your life goal? Or when you walk in here, what kind of mindset did you carry when you walked through that door? Better yet, when you walk out of that door, what kind of mindsets do you have now? That is the better question, I think, is when you walk out of here. Upon hearing the message through the word of God, what are you going to do? What are you going to prepare to do? If you have not set for yourself a goal in your life in Christ, I urge you, set it as soon as possible. And then come up with some concrete steps where you can reach the goal. And today, with the text, the summary is, we want to live for Christ. I want to repeat what Dr. Asis Bro said once again, is to live in the face of God, under the authority of God, for the glory of God. May God bless all who seek after that. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for your reminder this morning that we have failed you numerous of times, that we have not put you, or better yet, we have not submit under your authority. We have not realized that you are the creator. Although we have you in our mind, but oftentimes we don't have you in our lives. We make decisions on our own. We have our own goal. We do our own things. We go on our own ways, separate away from you. Forgive us if we have committed such sins. Remind us again through the word that we need to live for God. We need to live for you in the face and under your authority and for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name we pray.